friends, and shalom. This is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry, and today I'm bringing you part one of a message that I've titled, Counterfeits. Before I begin, just a quick reminder that you can support Truth Ignited through the Spotify podcast page, Cash App, or by visiting truthignited.com. For your convenience, I have provided QR codes that you can scan during this message. Also, check out the cool swag at the Truth Ignited store on TeePublic. Your support will help Truth Ignited do more and reach more people. 1 Kings 10, verses 16 through 17 says, King Solomon made 200 full-body shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold on each shield, and 300 small shields of beaten gold, three minutes of gold on each shield. The king put them in the forest house of Lebanon. Then in 1 Kings 14, verses 25 through 27, it says, Now it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, King Shishak of Egypt marched against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of Adonai and the treasures of the royal palace. He took away everything, even all the golden shields that Solomon had made. So, King Rehoboam made in their place bronze shields and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard watching over the doorway of the royal palace. You know, this is a fascinating story, uh, kind of a hidden gem of sorts. In the midst of the reign of King Solomon later on during the time of King Rehoboam, Solomon had created all of these magnificent shields made of gold that were kept in the forest house in Lebanon. Later, a king of Egypt came in and stole the golden shields. What did Rehoboam do? He replaced them with bronze counterfeits. They looked the same. The craftsmen may have even been able to get the color to match relatively close to real gold. Now sure, being bronze, they likely tarnished easily and required people to polish them. And that's a process that I'm all too familiar with, as I've polished my fair share of brass while serving in the United States Navy. But no matter how close they may have looked to the original gold shields, they were nothing more than cheap knockoffs. Certainly, we've all had some experience with counterfeit products at some point in time, Maybe someone tried to sell you a Rolex watch or a Gucci bag. During my time serving in the Navy, I had the opportunity to visit other countries. One time, while sitting on a beach in Mexico, some kid approached me and one of my friends from the ship trying to sell us the Oakley sunglasses that he had. They were a great deal, after all. I asked to see a pair, knowing good and well they could not possibly be real. You know, they look like the real thing, from their outward appearance, you might never know they were fake. Until that is, he handed me the pair that I asked to see, and immediately I could tell just by the feel of the material that they were made from that they were far from being authentic Oakley sunglasses. More and more, I've seen so-called Christians using cuss words and drinking at bars and talking about going to nightclubs and all sorts of things like this. And these are the things that traditional Christianity speaks against not even getting into things that most Christians don't obey due to their ignorance like the food laws, keeping the Sabbath day, or celebrating the biblical feast days. 
I'm not talking about the folks that might say, well, you know, I kind of believe in God, I guess. I mean, I'm not really sure my mom goes to church and she took me to Sunday school as a kid and I suppose I still sort of believe that kind of stuff. Look, no, look, look, I'm talking about the kind of people you see in churches every week, the kind of people who are actively involved in whatever they call ministry, the kind of people that some might say are on fire for God and others might call radical fanatics. Just in the week leading up to my beginning to draft this message, when I first wrote it a few years ago, actually, I've seen people I know personally People I have known for years share updates on their social media page with profanity on it. And they still do that. So-called Christians do that all the time. And I'm not talking about one or two. You know, one of them was actually one of my college professors at a Christian Bible college. Putting cuss words up on the social media. Now, recently I saw a video rant put out by a young lady who once tried to convince me she was a prophetess. You know, she bragged to me about how she had predicted things that have come true, and in her video rant, she was complaining about something and cussing. On top of that, her social media picture at the time of this rant was an image that looked like a gypsy or a witch, you know, wearing all black and including a black veil over her face. You know, we, we need to be very careful because there are people out there trying to convince us truly committed believers that they're one of us. Just because you accurately predicted something doesn't make you a prophet or prophetess of Yah. If you are on the internet ranting and cussing and representing yourself as a witch, a soothsayer, a warlock, a sorcerer, a wizard, or, or whatever, then that's exactly what you are. But you are no representative of Yah, that's for sure. There actually is an organization, you know, called Christian Witches, whose motto says that they love Christ and witchcraft and refuse to give up either. The Bible gives guidance on what a true prophet is in Deuteronomy 13 and other places. And, and if you don't align with that, you're just a soothsayer and a fortune teller, a counterfeit prophet or prophetess. Not so long ago, I was helping out some Christian friends. At, at one time, the couple had shared with me that they refused to watch that, that movie Noah from several years back. You know, the one that was starring Russell Crowe. Because all of the Christian reviews advised against it as it was produced by an atheist on a mission. Yes, it's true that the producer bragged about how he set out to make the most unbiblical Bible movie ever. And it's true that there were elements of the movie that were way off. Though it wasn't nearly as bad or ridiculous as the movie Exodus, Gods, and Kings that was also produced around the same time, which presented Yah as a bald child that looked like a Buddhist monk. Funny thing, or maybe not so funny, when I was in their home one day talking to the husband, he was casually talking and used a profane word. It was just normal talk, and he probably didn't even think I heard it. I also noticed on a table in their home the whole set of the Fifty Shades of Grey books. Now, maybe these folks thought that they should read these books to minister to people about how ungodly they are, but, but I would contend you don't really need to buy and read books like that to accomplish such a goal. Now, I was at a store, and I saw a copy of the first Fifty Shades of Grey book reminding me of the day I saw them at the home of my friend. So I looked at the back cover, 
And this is what it says, summarizing the storyline of this novel. When a literature student, Anastasia Steele, goes to interview young entrepreneur Christian Gray, she encounters a man who is beautiful, brilliant, and intimidating. The unworldly, innocent Anna is startled to realize that she wants this man and, despite his enigmatic reserve, finds she is desperate to get close to him. Unable to resist, Anna's quiet beauty, wit, and independent spirit, Gray admits he wants her too, but on his own terms. Shocked, yet thrilled by Gray's singular erotic tastes, Anna hesitates. For, for all the trappings of his success, his multinational businesses, his vast wealth, his loving family, Gray is a man tormented by demons and consumed by the need to control. When the couple embarks on a daring, passionately physical affair, Anna discovers Christian Gray's secrets and explores her own dark desires. Erotic, amusing, and deeply moving, the Fifty Shades trilogy is a tale that will obsess you, possess you, and stay with you forever. Erotic? Demonic? Does that sound like something a Christian should be feeding their mind and spirit with? Not to mention that they say right on the cover that you will become possessed by reading this book. People have long asked the question, can a Christian be possessed by a devil? Before we even get to that question, however, you have to be a Christian, not a counterfeit. There's a real problem if you're too holy to watch a movie about Noah because an atheist made it and intentionally messed with the storyline, but you cuss and read pornographic novels. If, if you're seeking to be entertained by such demonic things, it begs the question, what spirit are you really filled with? Because this does not sound like something anyone filled with the Holy Spirit would want anything to do with. And, and again, I'm not saying that my friends are being counterfeits. You know, I'm just kind of illustrating the point here. Maybe they really did think that they were doing some type of legitimate ministry research. I didn't ask them about the books as I felt at the time that it was none of my business, but I, I just knew they clearly seemed demonic, which was confirmed that day in the store when I looked at the cover of it. Probably about 15 years ago, I was doing some research for teaching. I was going to be doing on the dangers of pornography. Using the internet, e even setting my search parameters to safe, some of the results of various words and phrases that I searched for was completely inappropriate. And I quickly realized that I didn't need to dig that deep. So I stopped what I was doing. At, at some point, you just know something is evil and don't need to do a lengthy and exhaustive investigation to find out why. If the cover of the book is sufficient to know that it's evil, you don't need to read the whole thing. You don't need to read the Satanic Bible to know it's demonic. You don't need to watch pornography to know it's demonic. And you don't need to read a demonic pornography novel that says right on the cover that you'll be possessed by it to know that it's demonic. Some time ago, I saw a social media status from a 
young lady bragging about how she was out clubbing, you know, hanging out in nightclubs, you know, the certainly the most holy place that you could possibly be at. I, I saw a picture of another person out drinking at this local brewery in the area that was having a big drinking party. Look, we, and, and I'm talking about Christian people, people who call themselves Christians and are active in their churches. That, that's what I'm talking about here. Look, look we, we can sit and debate about whether or not it's a sin to have a single alcoholic beverage or if you have to actually get drunk. We, we can talk about whether or not it's okay to have actual wine for your celebration of Passover or Shabbat or any other of the holy Moedim. But people don't go to bars or nightclubs or brewery events just to have a beer. They go there to get drunk. And besides that, what in the world kind of witness for Yeshua are you when you're doing these things and then posting them on your social media page for, for the whole world to see all right in the middle of your Bible posts? In contrast to this, I know a guy who once told me that he refuses to walk down the alcohol aisle of the grocery store because that would give the appearance of evil. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, particularly things like the King James Version. Then I saw one time where he had shared pictures on his social media pumpkins he had carved into lanterns around Halloween time. Now, they were not true jack-o'-lanterns. They were pop culture cartoon characters, if I recall correctly. And he said that he was not doing it for Halloween. Let me ask you, what gives off more of an appearance of evil? Walking down the alcohol aisle, which most cases also has the bottled water in it, when, when drinking alcohol isn't even outright forbidden in the Bible, not, not that I endorse it, but it's not forbidden. There's nothing in the Bible that actually says you cannot drink alcohol, contrary to popular Christian beliefs. And, and you clearly are not putting booze in your shopping cart or, or, or carving a pumpkin lantern during the world's Halloween celebration. Even if you say you aren't really celebrating Satan's highest festival of the year, which one of those two things do you think would actually give the appearance of evil? I also know plenty of professing Christians who seem enamored by modern culture, embracing many of today's fictional comic book and cartoon characters. They seemingly don't know or simply don't care that characters like Marvel Comics Thor is based directly around a pagan god from ancient Germanic Norse Viking mythology. What today is continued through the Wiccan religion. DC Comics' Aquaman has a direct connection to ancient Rome's god Neptune, and Disney's Aladdin is a genie. I could also talk about things like unicorns and mermaids, of which I have full studies available at truthignited.com where you can read about them, because unicorns and mermaids are heavily inundated and very important to the witchcraft religions. You know, these things are plain demonic, not, not to mention all the witchcraft prevalent in almost all of Disney's princess movies and, or how many Christians walk around with a coffee cup proudly displaying the pagan goddess Melusine on it. You know, they claim that they believe in Yeshua and serve Yah. They say that they're filled with the Spirit, but then they surround themselves with false gods and demon spirits, literally embracing those more than they do anything biblical. 
How is it that people who have such a strong facade of Christian faith are in reality so fake? How can somebody filled with the Holy Spirit of God Almighty even be attracted to these things, let alone be entertained by them? Has the Christian church of today become Solomon's forest house where the gold has been replaced by bronze and we don't even have discernment enough to recognize it? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, I want to talk about this counterfeit Christianity. 2 Corinthians 11.4 from the Living Bible says, You seem so gullible. You believe whatever anyone tells you, even if he's preaching about another Jesus than the one that we preach, or a different spirit than the Holy Spirit you received, or shows you a different way to be saved. You swallow it all. And from the Amplified Bible, it reads this way. For you seem willing to allow it if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel for, from the one you accepted. You tolerate all of this beautifully, welcoming the deception. I chose these two translations of this verse because of the last sentence used in each one, the Living Bible says you swallow it all, and the Amplified Bible says you tolerate all of this, welcoming the deception. I believe one translation says that you're gullible. You're just gullible. The passage presents three counterfeits of which we will look at individually in part two of this message, but then it poses the idea that people are deceived by these imposters, gullible and falling for all of it. Some people might fall for one of these knockoffs, others two and still others really probably most people all three but the bottom line is that people are latching onto a fake jesus a fake spirit and a fake gospel and whether they fall for it one two or all three times those who are deceived by these things are embracing what can only be described as a counterfeit christian faith I'm well aware that many are looking to get away from using the term Christian to identify their faith in Yah through Yeshua, their Messiah. It's not my objective here to discourage or, or encourage this behavior. I've come to prefer identifying myself simply as a believer in Yah, or God, a follower of Yeshua, and a recipient of the Ruach HaKodesh, which is most properly rendered Spirit of Holiness. Now, despite that, I do identify myself, when necessary, as something more of a Messianic Pentecostal Christian, particularly when ministering to Christians who may not yet understand the Hebraic foundations of their faith or why people would abandon the use of the term Christian because it has come to mean anything but faith in the Bible, it seems. Regardless of how any of us choose to identify ourselves regarding our faith, ultimately, if we place our faith in the work of Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection, we're Christians, true Christians maybe, even if some who have come to embrace a Torah-positive faith don't want to accept that reality because it, they've allowed emotions regarding the state of modern, popular Christianity to cloud their judgment about the word Christian actually means biblically. But this means that, that we have to deal with those who are counterfeits, those taking the title of Christian and not living like Christ. Yeshua, the Jewish rabbi and Messiah who constantly and consistently taught his followers to live by the Torah of Yah. Now, I understand again that when 
or really if, I use the term Christian to identify my faith, I'm not referring, of course, to modern American Christianity, derived from the errors of Protestantism and Catholicism before it. I find it interesting that our opening scripture takes place during the life of Rehoboam, during his reign as king of Israel. You may be familiar with what it was happening at this time in Israel's history, and, and if not, I go into it much more in much more detail in my article, That's Not What It Means to Me, where I discuss the history of Israel's idolatry, and that's another one you can read on truthignited.com. It was during this time period that the nation of Israel split into two separate kingdoms, Israel and Judah. There were ten tribes that became the northern kingdom of Israel and two tribes that made up the southern kingdom of Judah. This new nation of Judah is what's actually referred to by the terms Jew and Jewish. The tribes remaining in Israel were those that were taken away into what is called the Diaspora, or the Dispersion. The southern kingdom of Judah, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the Levites that were appointed to those areas, would become the people known today as the Jews. Now, it's debated, I guess, by some whether or not those of the tribe of Benjamin would be considered Jews. However, Paul in Philippians 3, 4 through 6 identifies himself as an Israelite, a Hebrew, a Pharisee, and being from the tribe of Benjamin. And the terms Jew and Jewish again refer to those of the nation of Judah, not the earlier tribe of Judah. What I find most interesting about this is that it was during this same time of division that the counterfeit shields were used to replace the authentic gold shields from the time of Solomon. One of the major reasons I believe there are so many counterfeits in Christianity today is because of this ungodly division that is the hallmark of Protestant Christianity. This is not the product of real biblical faith, and part of the reason why Protestantism is one of the greatest deceptions the adversary has ever devised. God is not in rebellion and division, and the root word for Protestant is protest, a word synonymous with rebellion and division. We must renounce the Protestant and Catholic influences on modern Christianity and return to the faith and beliefs held by the first century biblical authors. The term Christian is not used many times in the Bible. The first time it's used is in Antioch, and it appears to be a derogatory term, actually, used by the haters to describe the messianic faith of those who identified themselves as the way and the Jewish sect of the Nazarenes. I'm no more a Protestant than I am a Catholic. Why why would I want to be a member of a 500-year-old religion that's never been in harmony with the whole Bible? That's what Protestantism is, you know, a 500-year-old religion that started out as a revolt against the Catholic Church. Protestantism, at its core, is heavily anti-Semitic and is where all major heresies of modern Christianity originated, from the hyper-grace that came from Luther's errors to the outright heresies of Calvinism, like predestination, radical cessationism, and eternal security. If you call yourself a Protestant, it is possible that you may simply be confused or ignorant to the full implication of the term, but it's much more likely that you're wrapped up in the counterfeit religion of modern-day popular Christianity. Have you ever stopped to think why there are over 40,000 Protestant Christian denominations? And that's just in the United States. I've, I've heard that if you include 
denominations outside of the United States. It can be in the hundreds of thousands. It's because every time someone has a protest with the unbiblical doctrine in the Protestant church that they're in, they start a new church in protest. They, they call it a church split. And the unbiblical doctrines in Protestantism are plenty because no Protestant church seems to have taken a whole Bible approach to their faith. Most of them are steeped in the heresies of replacement theology, and whether they realize it or not, are influenced by such things as Marcionism and Catholicism. Just look at the holidays that most Christians celebrate. They keep the pagan Catholic religions, Christmas, Easter, and Halloween and the Catholic Sunday Sabbath instead of the actual holy days and seventh day Sabbath that are listed throughout the Bible. So where do these counterfeit Christians come from? More than anything else, I believe they come from counterfeit conversions. Apart from that, there are also those who are planted in our midst by the adversary. To, to look at these two issues, we'll look at two familiar teachings of Yeshua. And as I bring this first part of the message to the to a, towards a close, we're going to talk about the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats. Matthew 13, 24 through 30 says, He presented to them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now when the stalk sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. So the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? But he replied, an enemy did this. Now the slaves say to him, do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he says, no, for while you're gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let, let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, we will tell the reapers, first gather up the weeds and tie them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34, and verse 41, it says, Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on the left, Go away from me, you cursed ones, into the everlasting fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I want to consider a possible alternate approach to these passages from what may be the traditionally held in interpretations today. This is not to say that the traditional meanings of these passages are wrong. However, according to both Jewish and Christian interpretation methods, there are what many would call prophetic layers of meaning in biblical passages. And when you peel back these layers, like kind of like peeling back an onion, the Spirit of God may reveal to you a new layer of meaning in the text. Now, I should know, however, that any deeper meaning one believes they see in a passage cannot go against the plain or literal meaning of the text, cannot go against the whole counsel of Scripture, or anything commanded in the Torah. This is a critical point when looking for deeper guidance from a passage. And along with that, I'm not talking about, nor do I endorse the practice of looking for esoteric ideas or secret codes hidden in the Bible, which would go against the Torah. You know, see Deuteronomy 29, 28. 
the tr traditionally, these passages have simply meant to, cr to Christian beliefs that there will come a time when the saved will be separated from the unsaved. While this is certainly true, I think once we go beyond this surface meaning to each statement, we can find something a little more concerning, something that directly affects the state of the body of Messiah. First, consider the passage of the wheat and the tares. In this account, we find that the tares are weeds that the enemy sowed in a man's field. Consider for a moment that the field is not the whole world, but the body of Messiah or, or even any given local church congregation or fellowship. As shocking as it may seem, there are those in the body that are direct plants from our adversary, Satan. For example, while I don't want to come out and directly accuse anyone of being such a person, uh, it would seem at least some of the examples that I've given in this message up to this point could fit the definition of tares or weeds among the wheat. After all, true holy people of God are not entertained by pornographic novels or present themselves in a manner that looks like literal witchcraft or attracted to movies with the gods of pagan religions, even if they're rebranded as comic book characters. One thing about tares that is often noted by Bible teachers who refer to this passage is that the tares look a whole lot like the wheat. That is, until the time of the harvest comes. And only when the fruit of the wheat and the fruit of the tares are revealed does one see the difference. So then the tares may represent not just the generally unsaved of the world, but also more specific to the body of Messiah, those who are planted by the enemy, those who do a good job imitating Christians in order to mislead people. This is one of the best reasons to follow the Bible and not other Christians. Now, now we come to the sheep and the goats. Again, the general interpretation of the passage as a separation of the saved from the unsaved certainly stands, particularly as this passage speaks of all nations. But let's consider a characteristic of the sheep and the goats that perhaps you may have never thought of about in relation to this passage. According to the Torah, both sheep and goats are clean animals. According to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, I strongly believe that an alternate approach to this warning is that there are truly born again believers in the body of Messiah and the counterfeits who look a whole lot like the real thing that many have a hard time telling the difference. Think about it for a moment. Both lamb and goats are acceptable for the Passover meal. While the greater emphasis and perhaps the preference of God himself is that we eat lamb prepared with bitter herbs on the Passover, goat is listed as the only acceptable alternative. This is likely because of the similarity of both animals, especially regarding cooked meat. Consider the separation of the sheep and the goats as a separation of real Christians from counterfeit Christians. So, with these views in mind, we've got a separation of the body of Messiah from those planted in the body by our adversary, then a separation within the body itself of those who are real from those who are fake. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin with the house of Yah. If judgment begins with us first, what will be the end of those who disobey the good news of God? Now, I don't know if I will ever understand why people choose to practice a religion they're not passionately and wholeheartedly committed to. But at some point, everyone will have to give an account to the master. If you're not taking this thing seriously, then you're gambling with eternity. Are you sure that you really want to do that? 
And folks, this is where I got to conclude part one of the message, but we're going to pick up in part two, and we're going to talk about those three points from 2 Corinthians 11.4 individually, the counterfeit Jesus, the counterfeit spirit, and the counterfeit gospel. Hey friends, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. If this message has impacted you, please feel free to share it with others. If you're enjoying these teachings, be sure to subscribe and consider becoming a $5 or $10 monthly partner. If you want to make a larger donation, please contact ministry at truthignited.com. If you're interested in more teachings like this from Truth Ignited Ministry, be sure to check out the website at www.truthignited.com and follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. I'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.